All right, good morning, everyone. Great to see you in the house today. Hey, get your Bible out. Let's do what we do. Uh, Turn to Luke chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 9. All right, and um, while you're telling, while, while you're turning there, uh, I, I had a conversation with a guy not too long ago, his friend of mine, we're about the same age, and he was telling me that he has recently gotten into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, okay? And I'm like, man, you gotta be careful. You're gonna, at your age, you're gonna move something out of joint that you can't put back. And he's like, no, 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 no. He goes, I got into it for my kids, and it was great for them, and, and now I'm getting into it, it keeps me fit. And I I made the mistake. I look now back on that and I realize this was a big mistake. I said something like, well, that'd be kind of fun. Maybe I should go with you sometime. I was just kind of making conversation. He was like, oh, no. I mean, his eyes got wide. He's like, oh, okay. All right, we're going to make this happen. And it became his mission, you know, to get me to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So finally, he's like inviting, inviting. Finally, like, okay, I will go with you one time uh, just to to put this to bed, okay? And so I went. And uh, it was, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that experience. Uh, For example, I learned that when you go there, if any of this happens to you, you'll be prepared. Uh, uh, When you go there, you know, I was kind of dressed in my gym shorts and all that kind of thing. No, no, you got to put on a special uh, robe called a gi, all right? And then you've got a belt that you have to tie a certain way. It's very meticulous the way you do that. And then when you enter into the workout space, that you have to show honor and respect to the teacher or the instructor. And so we did that. And then everyone gathers around the instructor who is a black belt, highest level. And he addresses everyone. He usually has a partner with him. And that he demonstrates several moves or maneuvers that he's teaching you for that day. And then you break off into groups and then you go through those moves and try to imitate what he has done. And he will walk by and say, you know, move your leg over here, grab with this hand. He'll kind of give you some coaching along the way. And that's pretty much the workout. And then at the end of the, of the training time, everyone lines up in order of the rank of their belt. Okay, so I, this was my first time, so I had the white belt on, and I was down here with a third grader and second grader, okay? <laughs> this just felt a little weird, okay, to be honest with you. Uh, but nevertheless, and, and then they made some acknowledgments and that kind of thing, and then it was over. And so uh, I'm changing into my clothes and going back out to my car, and I'm just kind of thinking, reflecting on this experience and it, it, what, what went through my mind is, man, people really have to want this. I mean, if they, everyone's there to be a black belt. Nobody's there to just stay in the belt that they're in. Everybody wants to finally get to be this black belt, to be a, an instructor like the master, right? But in order to get there, there's a lot of work to get there. I, I literally went home and Googled how long does it take to get to be a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's like a decade, like 10, 17 years. And, and that's if you go three, four, five times a week and you got to put in all this effort. I mean, they have to they have to say no to laying around on the couch. They have to slay, say no to hanging out with their friends or doing other things are a lot easier. I mean, it, you have to pay the price to, to attain to that level uh, of, of that art and or that martial art. And so uh, it just made me think, man, there's a lot to this if you want to be like that master. And of course, you're probably already where I'm going. I thought it's, it's a lot like following Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, there's a cost involved. 
We have been talking about the invitations of Jesus in this series, and I'm wrapping it up today. And there are four invitations in the gospel that Jesus extends. The first one is come and see. And we looked at that. Come and see. Come kick the tires. Come bring your spiritual questions. Come find out what I'm about. And so that's a big one. Everyone starts at the come and see phase. And then the second one is follow me. That's where you have to make a decision to follow Jesus. It's a step of faith. And you have to say, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to now be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's when you pray and receive Christ by faith. And there's a whole lot to it. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The next invitation is be with me. And Cameron did a great job last week talking about be with me, but this is when Jesus invited his disciples to be with him and he was going to train and equip them to grow in their faith and be prepared to lead others. And every Christian needs to go into the be with me phase where they're learning to feed themselves and grow in their faith and learn how to disciple and invest in other people. But now we get to the last invitation. The final invitation. And quite honestly, the most challenging of all four. And we find it here in Luke chapter 9. So let's look at it. Uh, Luke chapter 9. And we're going to begin now in uh, verse 18. All right? Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 18. This is the word of God. Amen? And while he was praying in private... And his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now stop right there for just a minute. This event happens late in Jesus's ministry and life on the earth. We're, we're talking nine months before Jesus dies, okay? So if you're thinking about this way, this, the, the clock, the countdown clock starts here. In nine months before Jesus' death, is this conversation. Six months before his death, another conversation. Three months, another one, and then his death. So this starts the time clock counting down to Calvary. And so on Jesus' mind is the cross. I mean, this is what he's moving toward. This is what he knows is ahead of him. This is, he knows what awaits him. And so this is very much on his mind. And so he's asking his disciples a very obvious question. Who do people say that I am? And they're very quick to give them the response. Some people think you're John the Baptist, some a prophet, some Elijah coming back from the dead. In other words, they know, Jesus, that you're not, you're not just some normal rabbi. There's something about you that's different. I mean, they're trying to piece it together. They don't quite know. If you think about it, in, during Jesus' life on earth, there was a lot of confusion about him. There is today, but there was back then. In fact, you can mark in your Bible, in the margin, uh, right next to this verse, John 7, John chapter 7, and it unpacks for you there a whole uh, mixture of ideas about who Jesus is during his time. Some people thought he was a good man. Some people thought he was a deceiver. Some people thought he was a prophet. Some people thought he was the Messiah. Some people were just confused about Jesus. And I think the same is true today. If you want to stir things up at the office, just uh, put out a poll asking people, who is Jesus? All right, and you'll, you'll mix things up for sure. And you'll get a wide variety of responses. Just this week, I was watching a video where William Lane Craig, who's a Christian apologist, is having a conversation with Ben Shapiro. 
and, and their debate is about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. I mean, still today, we're still having these same conversations about what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah. So Jesus asks him, what do people say? And they, they give him the responses. And then he narrows the question to you. He says, okay, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And this is when Peter, for once, knocks it out of the park. I mean, Peter, you know, he's used to putting his sandal in his mouth so many times, right? But I mean, this time, man, he just, he gets it right. Look at what he says. He says, you are God's Messiah. <laughs> Perfect. Man, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the coming king. You're the promised one. You're the one we've been looking for and waiting for. You're the guy. You're the Messiah. You're God's Messiah. And, and you would have thought that Jesus would have high-fived and chest-bumped him, you know, and said, finally, Peter, you got it right. But look at how Jesus responds, totally different. Look at verse 21. But he strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Now, this is one of three, the first of three clear predictions of his death and resurrection. This one is the first of three. I mean, up to this point, Jesus is speaking in metaphor and in language that could be, you know, not super clear. But now this is crystal clear. And I, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day. Crystal clear. You can't get past it. And, 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 but this is, this is what Peter is struggling with. I mean, Peter doesn't expect this. I mean, he's saying, man, you're the, you're the Messiah. In his mind, what that meant was, you are the military leader. You're going to be, you're going to take over. You're going to kick the Romans out. You're going to reestablish Israel. You're going to be the king and we're going to be with you. We're going to finally be on the right side of history. We are going to, we're going to just ride this thing to the top. You're the one that's going to set everything straight. You're going to fix everything that's wrong. And when Jesus starts talking about death, that just doesn't compute with Peter. In fact, if you go back to Matthew 16, which is basically Matthew's account of this very event, Peter pushes back. He, Peter like gets, pulls Jesus to the side and says, Jesus, you don't talk about this death stuff. He said, that's not going to happen. You're not going to die. I'm going to take care of this. You're not going to die. That's never going to happen. And, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. He said, Peter, you know what your problem is? You're, you're thinking about this from like your limited human perspective. And you don't see, Peter, what's really going on. You don't know why I've come. You don't really understand what God is doing and what I'm doing. What is about to happen must happen. This is why I came. But Peter just didn't have a framework of suffering. You know, there are a lot of people that come to Christ like that. They have the same problem that Peter did. They will see that they have sinned. They, they know they are far from God. And they hear a message that, man, you give your life to Christ and you're going to have joy and forgiveness and peace. And by the way, is all that true? Yes or no, is all that true? Yes, of course that's true. But, 
what they hear in their mind is, well, he's going to fix my marriage, he's going to fix my kids, he's going to fix my, my failing business, he's going to make sure all my dreams come true, and I'm, my kids are going to be on the dean's list, and, and everything's going to be fantastic, and everything's going to be wonderful, and then all of a sudden they give their life to Christ, and things aren't that great. Or, even worse, maybe I endure hardship or suffering because I'm a follower of Jesus, and they go, man, I didn't sign up for that. <laughs> That's not what I signed up for. And Peter was in danger of having that same thing. I'm signing up for the, you know, for all the great things as the Messiah is coming, but I'm not, he had no perspective of hardship. And, he, and he, Jesus is saying, get this, Peter, I'm going to walk this thing out and it's going to get really, really hard. And if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to know they're going to face the same thing. See, he had to reset, Jesus had to reset Peter's expectations before Peter could receive this last invitation. Maybe your expectations need to be reset. You know, the reason why Jesus came was to fix our real problem, and that's our sin problem. That we sin against God, we're far from God. That Christ came to die a substitutionary death for us so that we could avoid the wrath of God and we could be reconciled back to God. That's why he came. Now, there's gonna come a day when he's gonna make things right again. Uh, somebody say amen to that, all right? Yeah, there's coming a day, man, when that day's gonna come and he's gonna, he's gonna come and he's gonna right every wrong and he's gonna deal with evil and he's gonna set everything straight again. And praise God, we're looking forward to that day. But between today and that day, there's gonna be a season of endurance and obedience and hardship and that's what Jesus is trying to get into Peter's mind. So he has this, this conversation to kind of reset his expectation. And then he offers him this, or extends to him, this last invitation. And we find it in Luke 9.23. Look at it. Luke 9.23. Here it is. The last invitation. He said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Uh, most modern translations say, if anyone would come after me. Uh, I really like that much better than follow me. I think come after me is more literal in the text. And it does kind of set it apart from the other invitations to come after me. If you want to come after me, if you really want to follow me, if you want to be like me, it's going to cost you. Just like those, those students in the Brazilian jiu-jitsu class, you know, it's going to cost you to get there. If you really want to come this road, if you really want to walk this road, if you really want to be like me, it's going to cost you something. You say, well, what does it mean exactly? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. What does that mean? I think I can condense that invitation into two words. I want you to write these in the margin of your Bible. Here are the two words. Selfless surrender. Selfless surrender to really come after Jesus requires selfless surrender. So let's, let's take that apart. Let's look at the selfless part. Look at what he says. Let him deny himself. Let him deny himself. This last week, 
Tim Keller's memorial service took place in New York City. Some of you know who Tim Keller is. He was the founder of Redeemer Church in New York City. And for uh, many years has, has through his book, many books and, and sermons have really impacted thousands of people uh, with the gospel. And a faithful man that uh, loved the Lord to the very end, a faithful pastor that loved the, his, the church that God gave him to plant and start to the end. And we're very thankful for Tim Keller. Um, his funeral took place in St. Patrick's Cathedral, this beautiful cathedral in downtown Manhattan. 2,000 people packed into that ceremony. And every person there received a copy of one of Tim Keller's little booklets. This is just a small booklet. Uh, This one is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Everyone got a copy of this booklet. And in this booklet, uh, Tim writes something that I think uh, is germane to our topic today of denying yourself. This is what he writes. He said, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. He goes on to say on the same page, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience and every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Now think about that for just a minute. Think about how many times in a conversation you turn the conversation to you. How many times you will you bring up what you did or, or what you were thinking or what your story is or what your expectation? I mean, I do this all the time and I'm like, oh, I just see this. I mean, I just, we do this instinctively. We will, we will turn things to us. But, but this is, Jesus is saying, deny yourself. And by the way, this essence of denying yourself is so incredibly, radically countercultural. Man, if you want something that's counterculture, going against the grain, this is it. Because our culture is all about myself. Our culture basically says this, if you feel something, then your feelings define who you are. Feelings define identity. So if I have a feeling, then that that means that that's who I am. And then if that is who I am, then I must express those feelings. I must articulate those feelings. Carl Truman in his book called this expressive individualism. I have to express now what my feelings are in order to be authentic. Otherwise, I'm not being my authentic self. And therefore, you must affirm my feelings in order for everything to be good. And so the value, the highest value in our culture today is self-expression. Exalting myself, expressing myself, expressing my feelings, expressing who I think I am on the inside, and your affirmation of that. That is the highest value in our culture. And so Jesus goes right in the face of that, and he says, no, 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 it's not about you expressing yourself, it's about you dying to yourself, to deny yourself. I mean, in our culture today, if you say deny yourself, they go, oh, that's oppression. You're oppressing me because I can't express myself. No, no, no. Jesus is saying that very thing. Deny yourself. See how radical that is? How crazy different that is than our world today? It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, there's a circle, and this circle is your life, and there's only room for one in the center. 
and it's either going to be me in the center, and here, here is me, and I'm in the center of the circle, and everything's about me, and what I want, and my feelings, and my desires, and my dreams, and, and what, what I think I should be getting, and, and so I'm expressing that out, and I'm the center, the, the vortex and the, of all that I, is in my life. But he said, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to step outside of that. And you're going to have to let Jesus be the center. And it's all about what he wants and what pleases him and what glorifies him and what pushes him forward, not you. Can you see how different that is from how most people live their life today? He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. John the Baptist got it right when he said in John 3.30, he must increase, speaking about Jesus, and I must decrease. That's what John was saying. John understood this to come after Jesus. I must voluntarily lay aside my wants, my desires, my dreams, my sexual preferences, my relationships, my addiction, my identity, my hobbies, my money, my calendar, my reputation, my dating life, all the things that I think are important. I choose to obey Jesus first above all. And by the way, Jesus modeled this for us, right? Because in Philippians 2, it tells us that he, existing in the very nature of God, uh, stepped down from that and he humbled himself and he emptied himself and he went to a cross. And, and Jesus models this for us. He's not just telling us this. This is how he lived. And this is how Jesus calls us to live. So radical selfless surrender begins with selfless. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about you. It's all about what does Jesus want, what pleases him, what glorifies him. Now let's look at that second half. That was selfless. So let's look at the word surrender. What is it, where, does it, where do we get that? Look at the verse again. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. There it is. And follow me. In 2018, Stephen Epp, who's a pastor from Tulsa, decided to literally do that, to take up his cross and carry it. Feel like God told him to make a cross and carry it, so he did. He made a cross. He carried it across Tulsa. He carried it across Oklahoma, but he didn't stop there. He felt like God called him to carry the cross further. So he started in uh, Wilmington Beach, North Carolina, and he carried the cross all the way to San Diego, California. I'd say that's a pretty good jaunt. Would you agree with that? That's a pretty, pretty, pretty good walk, all right? He carried the cross. And at the end of it, he thought, well, I, I've now completed what God told me to do. But he said, no, the Lord just keeps telling me to keep carrying it. And so now he's carried his cross uh, across 30 different states, over 7,000 miles of walking, carrying his cross. And many times reporters will come up to him and say, tell us, why are you doing this? What, are you, what is your message? What are you trying to say? And usually he just says something like, you know what? I, I just want, I want to get out there and not just be in a church. I want to be out there where the people are and remind them of God's goodness. I want this to just, just to be kind of a public expression of God's grace and hope in Jesus, which I, I, I have no problem with that. I think that's awesome. But I want to remind you that in Jesus' day, they also saw men carrying a cross. But it was very different than this. It wasn't a public expression. It was a public execution. And when they carried their cross, I mean, if you were living in the day of Jesus and you saw someone carrying their cross, which you would have seen multiple times, it would be something that you would turn away from. I mean, it was so horrific, so intense, 
so sad. Here is this person suffering. If you saw someone carrying their cross, you knew that it was a one-way ticket. You knew if you saw someone carrying their cross, they were a dead man walking. Cross meant death. Everyone knew that. So why does Jesus then tell us to pick up our cross and follow him daily? What, what does that mean? I, I think it means surrender. I think it's the cross is a picture of surrender. Where do we get that? You look at Jesus right before he goes to the cross. The very last thing we have recorded before he goes to the cross. There he is in Gethsemane. There he is praying to his father. There he is saying, Father, if there's any way this cup can pass, Lord, let it pass. And, and then he gets to the end of it and he says, but not my will, but what? Your will be done. What is he doing? He's surrendering to his father's will. The cross is a picture of surrender. It means, God, I'm not going to fight you for what I want. I surrender to what you want. Father, I, 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 it's not about what I want. It's about what you want. It's not about what my, my hope for. It's what you hope for. It's not what pleases me. It's about what pleases you, God. And my answer is yes to whatever you want me to do, no matter what the cost. My answer is yes to wherever you want me to go, no matter what. My answer is yes to whatever it will cost me, God. Whatever you ask, yes. My answer is yes. My response is yes. That's what it looks like. To surrender to the Lord and to come after Jesus. Paul put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I mean, I'm a dead already. I mean, I've been crucified with Christ. I, I died to my old life anyway. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now get this. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, which I love that last part, right? He loves me. He gave himself for me and now I'm just giving myself back to him, right? That's what it means to follow Jesus. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, I die all day long because it's a daily decision to say no to myself and yes to Christ. It's a daily decision to die to myself, to die to my selfishness and to choose to be selflessly surrendered to Jesus. So what does that look like for you? What does it mean for you to live a life of selfless surrender? For some of you, it may mean that there's some area of disobedience in your life and you know it and God's been telling you, hey, this is wrong. You shouldn't be watching that. You shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be in that and you know it and, and it means you have to die to this in order to come after Jesus. For some people, it's a relationship that you're into and this relationship is not God honoring and you know it's not God honoring and the scripture is clear. It's not fuzzy. It's not gray. It's very clear and yet you, you're wanting to keep this related, try to follow Jesus, but you can't do both. For some of you, it's a, it's a hurt or bitterness that you've harbored in your heart. That person did that to me and I will never forgive them. And, and you're just constantly nurturing this hatred toward this person for how they treated you or your children or your husband or your wife or whatever the case may be. And yet that very thing is hindering you from following after Christ. And you have to die to that in order to follow after Jesus. I mean, there, there's something that you've got to die to, to follow fully after Jesus. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. 
And you say, well, man, that seems really hard. <laughs> that seems really hard, right? But listen, it is totally, totally worth it. It's totally worth it. Because on the other side of selfless surrender is a fruitful, fruitful life. I mean, tell you what, on the other side of the selfless surrender is a fruitful life. You know, when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I, I worked for a seed company and we would take all these different seeds, we plant them. And then of course we grow the, these test plots and then we would evaluate them to check on the yield and the harvest and you know, how much, uh, how much, how productive they were. I learned something in the seed company. I know this is going to be incredibly uh, profound. You're probably going to want to write this down. Uh, I learned something in the seed company. Here, here it is. Here's what I learned. Uh, seeds do you no good staying in the bag, right? They just don't do anything in the bag. But here's the deal. If you take them out of the bag and you bury them, then comes life. Then comes fruitfulness. But there has to be a burial first. On just days now before Jesus died, this is what he said, almost the same thing. John 12, he said, truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. He's probably thinking about his own life. He's like, man, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to be buried. But through the resurrection, I'm going to bring life to, to countless souls that will be in heaven because of what I am doing here. He had in mind the fruitfulness that was made the cross worth it. And then he invites you. Uh, sounds a lot like Luke 9. Listen to what he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow me in this burial. Follow me in this dying daily. Where I am, there my servant will be. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. They may not have fully understood, those disciples, what Jesus was talking about at that moment. But they ultimately got it. Those 12 men decided to have the funeral. They decided to die to themselves and to put Jesus in the center of their life. They made that daily decision. And you know what happened? Great fruitfulness is what happened. A fruitful life. These, these 12 men turned into 72 and those 72 turned into others also. There was 120 in the upper room when the Holy Spirit came in power. They filled Jerusalem with their teaching. They spread the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and into the world. These very men took the gospel to Europe. They took the gospel to North Africa. They took the gospel to Asia. And listen, we are sitting here as a result of the fruit, the eternal fruit of their lives. Isn't that amazing? Man, their obedience to die to themselves and live for Christ has produced the fruitfulness that we see now all around the world. Now let me ask you, is your life fruitful? Is your life fruitful? If it was over today, if curtain comes down, game over, you're standing before Jesus Christ, could you point to anyone who is walking with Jesus? Because of your life, because you chose selfless surrender. That's what Jesus is asking. It's in, that, in that passage I just read to you, he said a grain of wheat must fall and be buried, bears fruit. He said if, you, if anyone wants to serve me, he's got to walk the same road. And then he makes a statement at the very end of it. He said, the father will honor that person. I wonder what that means. 
Surely he's talking about in heaven, right? Surely he's talking about the end of time when we stand before God that we'll be honored, that you will be honored if you live a life of selfless surrender. It's hard to picture that, right? Because I think of heaven, I think of God being honored, right? God's going to be honored. How am I going to be honored? When I was in that jujitsu class, like I said, at the end of the class, we do all our demonstrations and then we all line up by rank. You picture it now. Here I am with my white belt over here with the second and third graders, you know, at the end of the line. But the, the, the master is walking up and down that line and he's talking about a person, one of those in that line, he calls them to stand out and they step forward and he puts his hand on this person's shoulder. And he talks about the work that they've done, the sacrifice they made, and that they are now moving up to the next belt color. And how proud he is of them. And everyone applauds. And reflecting on that, it made me think, I wonder if that's what it's going to be like in heaven. Maybe we're just worshiping Jesus. <laughs> and then there's a moment in time when Jesus says, okay, everybody take a break here. I'm going to make some recognitions. <laughs> and he calls your name. Come up here. And he puts his arm around you and he says, I want you to know about this one here. This one belongs to me. And I'm so proud of you. You made decision to selflessly surrender every day to me. And look at all these people that are here because of you. And all of heaven celebrates. So what Jesus is calling you to, inviting you to, this is his final invitation. He's inviting you to selfless surrender. I want you to bow your heads with me for just a minute. Just in the stillness of this moment, what is the Spirit of God saying to you this morning? What is He saying to you? What is it that you need to die to? Is there anything that right now the Spirit of God is pointing out that He really wants you to die to, to walk away from in order to come after Jesus? Are you in the center of that circle or is Jesus in the center of the circle? If there's anything, any person, any relationship, that has your devotion ahead of Jesus. He said, come after me. Means to die to that. And to follow me. Right now, just in the stillness of this moment, would you just surrender those things to him? Say, Lord, I surrender everything to you. Lord, I give it all to you.